Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction books. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with author Cassandra Clark, whose mystery, Dark Waters Rising, is being published by Severn House, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good day, Cassandra. Good day, Lenny. Would you start us off with a brief excerpt from your book, please? Yes, OK. This is from the prologue. It's autumn, 1394. A man was watching from the trees. He was awaiting his chance. As soon as one of the fishermen brought his boat to shore, he would take it. He fingered his knife. Behind the trees, a puddled lane emerged from between the cottages round a green. It wound down to the bank of the estuary, where a few boats lay above the tide line. The man concealed among the trees guessed this was where the villagers did their fishing, either sitting on the bank with a line in the water, or by sculling their makeshift boats into the deeper channel, further off, to drop a net over the side. Their boats were little more than coracles, unseaworthy in his estimation, and he didn't want to take any more chances. A boat already in use would be safest. He fingered the knife again. It was foul weather. Nobody was about but for one man on the water, whistling through his teeth while he waited for a fish to bite. Suddenly a flash of silver broke the surface. Moments later he turned for home at last. Hold back, the man with the knife warned himself. Hold back. Wait until the luckless fool comes ashore. Wait for it. He melted further in amongst the wet branches as the craft forced away through the swollen waters. The tide looked full enough to break its banks. It was already flooding the path from the village. The knifeman frowned with impatience. He had to get across to the other side before dark. His life would be nothing if he was stopped now. The Humber estuary was wide here, narrowing upriver to where they said there was a Roman ford, and beyond that was a bridge near a small town whose name he didn't know. This was the last place where he could risk the crossing. What he would find on the other bank he had no idea, beyond the vague knowledge that not far off would be the Abbey of Muse, a priory of nuns at somewhere called Swine, and a house of Austin canons hidden in the woods. He grimaced, and rubbing the back of a travel-stained hand across his face, he narrowed his eyes as the fisherman at last beached the coracle and jumped ashore. The grip on his knife tightened, and he wondered if he would have to use it. When Hildegard entered the prioress's private chapel, she found her sitting in a wooden chair, boots resting on a stool, and her cat lying across her knees. This was unusual enough to drag a remark from her after her usual obeisance. The prioress gave her a resigned glance and allowed her gaze to drift towards her altar with its single icon and the candle burning in front of it. Peter Brevis, my dear, none of us live forever. It's for this reason I want to speak to you. You will know my mind. I wish you to take my place when the time comes for me to resign. Hildegard's comment that, God willing, it would be years yet before such an event took place was scarcely uttered before the prioress put up a hand. It's the way of the world, Hildegard. It's no good pretending. Thank you for that. And for our listeners who are unfamiliar with your series, could you talk a little bit about who Hildegard is and uh, just the setting of the series? Yes. Well, it's set in the late 14th century when Chaucer was at the height of his powers. And Hildegard was married to a minor lord 
who was involved in the in the wars in France and went missing, presumably dead. And she wondered what to do. She thought, I could remarry, which is what would normally happen, or I could join an order and do something really useful. And that's what she does. She takes a dowry, joins the Cistercians, who were the, the big, powerful, trading monastics at that time. And she joins the priory at Swine, which is up in the north of England, near a massive abbey, which was the third richest one in England at that time, after Fountains and Revo. And it was called Muse. And she joins the nuns at Swine, who are connected to Muse. And it goes on from there. And she's, she finds herself in all sorts of adventures as a sleuth. I'll tell you why she, why I chose a woman. I got really fed up with um, sleuths always being men, always with some sort of problem, emotional, physical or whatever. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice to do it for the girls and have a proper, like like Brother Cadfill, but a, a woman solving things. So um, that's why I chose her. And that's how she she came to be uh, um, involved with the Cistercians. And so this is 1394. What's the political situation like? Who is who's ruling England at this point? Oh, it's a really interesting situation. Richard II was ruling. He came to the throne after his grandfather, Edward III, because Richard's own father, the Black Prince, died very young. So Richard inherited, and he was 10 when he came to the throne. And apparently a really blonde, blue-eyed boy, and everybody adored him. But, of course, his ambitious uncles, the barons, thought it was ridiculous having a boy on the throne and there was a lot of vying and competition to get rid of him so they could take over. The worst culprit being John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster, who was Edward III's third son, and his son, uh, Bolingbroke, Henry Bolingbroke, who in fact later on, 20 years later, did in fact grab the crown and murdered Richard. So for all of his reign, his 22-year reign, Richard was threatened by the barons. Also at the same time, there was schism in, in the church too, because there were two popes, one in Rome and one in France. So there's a great deal of um, battling between the factions. That leads into what I was going to ask you, because I was wondering how both the uh, political situation that you just talked about in terms of the throne and the religious schism uh, directly impacts Hildegard's community. Well, this is why she's recruited into, um, first of all, being the spy for the Archbishop of York, who was a fellow called Fiery Neville, Alexander Neville. And he was the brother, this is all true, he was the brother of the prioress at Swine, who is never named. And I did my research by reading the Chronicle of Muse, which was written in 13, up to 1395. So it's it's all true fact. No witches, no dragons, just facts of what they were up to. And they were quite a, a warmongering lot among themselves, I have to say. And obviously in, in, in recent weeks, uh, we over here in America have been, have been struck by the uh, immense outpouring of grief in response to the passing of the Queen. Could you contrast the relationship of the British public now to the monarchy to the way it was back in uh, the 14th century. Well, that's interesting. In some ways, it was similar in that ordinary folk in Richard II's time adored him. He was really, really popular. And I think the Queen 
the fact that she's been around for most of our lives is is really extraordinary. I felt myself feeling quite tearful. I'd never really thought of myself as a monarchist or given it much thought at all. But I did feel something really strange had happened. A change, but no change. Very odd, but strangely popularity for them as a figurehead, I think, to represent something symbolically. Richard was very much into symbolism. He was one of the first kings to use the the oil, which they have at the coronation, um, said to come from John the Baptist or someone. You know, it's sort of a symbolic thing. But it meant that he had a bond as a servant of the people to represent them. So there, there are interesting parallels. So you mentioned one of the primary sources that you use to sort of research the series over, I, I believe you've been writing this for over you know 15 years. Uh, what surprised you the most about the period as you did all your research? Mm, surprised me well. I think the Victorians told a lot of um, half-truths. I don't think they did proper research. They looked at secondary sources. Um, but if you look at the, fir- the, the primary sources then, you get a very different picture. Women were not as invisible as were led to believe. They could trade in their own right as femme sole. They could join the guilds as members. They worked in all sorts of, of things, you know, not just domestic stuff, but things like stained glass, uh, glass making, all that sort of thing. So it surprised me to see that there was lots of evidence for this because they were assiduous document keepers at that time. They they wrote all their financial transactions down. So it's a question of just going back and looking at the records. And that's that's very interesting. It gives a quite different picture of the time to the one we get from the Victorians. And what do you attribute that Victorian era historical inaccuracy to, which is to say, was it carelessness? Was it not looking at the right sources? Or was there perhaps an agenda behind the way they were interpreting or being selective about the sources they used in their interpretation? I, I have a feeling it's just a general romanticism. They were buoyed up by um, ideas of nationhood, as every nation in Europe was at that time, the Napoleonic Wars and so on, leading up towards that that century of, of um, Queen Victoria. And on your website, you have a uh, biography page for Hildegard. To what extent had all of that been worked out by you before you even started the first book? Well, I knew I wanted to write from a woman's point of view, and I knew that it was um, borne out by the facts that it would be possible for someone like that to fulfil that role. Um, but then everything was a gradual learning process. For in- instance, I've just mentioned glassmaking. I used to live in York, so I know it very well. I know the Minster very well. And the glass there is absolutely amazing. And it's never really... it doesn't really enter people's mind. How, how is it done? The fact that it's called stained glass is a complete misnomer. It's not stained at all. It's painted and then fired. And there were obviously lots of glassmakers in York in this particular period, making the glass which we can see today, which is really astonishing, 600 years later. But the interesting thing was to actually find out what they did 
and walk past the places where the glassmakers worked down Stonegate in the middle of York, which was a really extraordinary experience. So I've, I, I've learned a lot of different things, about mainly about craft and, and the work people did. And it made me think that actually, if we lived there, any of us now, we'd be at a total loss. We wouldn't survive. They were very skilled craftspeople with great seven-year apprenticeships. So there were always people who could do the jobs that were necessary. I think we've a lot to learn from that over here. And with centuries of British history to draw from, what about this particular century interested you to set your series in? Well, this was accidental. I'm a playwright at heart, and I was in New York to write the final version of a a play, um, and I arrived at Edward Albee's barn, Montauk, two days before the Twin Towers came down. And when I eventually got back to England, I found I just couldn't write plays. I just couldn't write it. The play was performed, and then I just I just dropped it. And I was casting around for something new to do. And there's so many ideas, always so many ideas. And I didn't know what to do. And one night I had the most weird dream. And it was three people. And I hadn't laughed for a long time. I, I was quite shattered by what had happened in New York. It was it was quite a traumatic experience to be there at that time. Of course, you probably know that. Um, so when these characters turned up in the dream, they were bantering and joking and... When I woke up, having written down what they said, I realised it would make an interesting short story, as I thought. And then I became more interested. Who are they? Where are they? And it transpired by sheer chance that they were in the north of England, that one of them was a steward at Castle, the other one was a um, a Saxon lord, uh, uh, Roger de Hutton. And there was a woman there in white robes, and I couldn't work out who she was, no idea. And then eventually it transpired that she was a Cistercian and it was the late 14th century. And then slowly it spread from that. It's the most odd thing. I don't usually follow dreams to that extent. Your readers have benefited from that. (laughs) You've begun another series featuring a clerical sleuth. Can you talk about uh, what led you to create brother, excuse me, Roderick Chandler? And what did creating him enable you to do that you weren't able to do with Hildegard? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I was going to take Hildegard right up to the murder of Richard II, as it's such a, a major event. But I realised I'd have to live to be about 140 to get all the books in. So I thought, I'll jump to the end now. It's a jump cut here. We'll have three three books about the about the murder and how it came about. So it wasn't really feasible to have a woman close at hand at that point. Chandler's a swordsman, he he can fight, he's a spy, he's a renegade, he's employed by the Lancastrians, by Henry Bolingbroke, and it gave me a chance to make him a, a double agent. And he has a, obviously, it's not a plot spoiler now because the book's written, but he cha- he does change sides. And it means he can follow the events from 1399 when Bolingbroke invades England. Chandler can be there physically there, so he doesn't have to do it all by hearsay. So he gets taken up to Pontefract Castle when Richard II is deposed and where he's eventually murdered, as the story goes. We don't know the truth there. And then after that, he comes back to London and gets involved in the 
in the thick of the repression brought in by Henry Bolingbroke. Henry, that's Henry the Fourth, by the way, if you don't realise. The thing about Henry the Fourth is nobody knows the truth about him. He was very shadowy. He was on the throne for 13 years, but the Lancastrians survived and were very important later. As you know, Victor always, always write the history. So we've got a very saccharine account of, of Bolingbroke. But in fact, within the first year, he brought in this outrageous law called Heretico Comparendo, the burning law, which gave him the legal right to burn anybody who didn't agree with him by calling them heretics. So I thought that needed to be put on record, as it's always brushed under the carpet and people tend to forget that he was the guy who brought it all in. Was writing the Chandler books easier, having already written the, many of the books in the Hildegard series, or was it harder? In lots of ways, it was it was a very familiar territory, but then I was trying having to find ways to bring Chandler into the action without actually writing a history textbook. So he had to be thought through as a character. I hope he comes off the page as a human being. And your career before you started writing all these wonderful novels has it was quite a diverse one. You you taught history, you taught philosophy. You mentioned before to writing plays. You wrote libretti. Uh, you ran a theater. Um, can you talk about the ways in which those experiences influenced your writing of mystery fiction? Oh well, the lunchtime theater was a very interesting experience because it was held in the Tudor Inn within the walls of York. So the, there was a... I'm not really into hauntings and things, but there was a very great sense of the past there over everything we did, even though we were doing contemporary um, contemporary plays. I don't know. It's not a question I've really thought about. I like writing dialogue. I, I don't feel characters really live unless they're speaking to the reader. So that was interesting. And I love actors, though. I'm so in awe of them. I don't know how they do it. It's quite magical. Uh, there's a very good little 18th century theatre in York, too, where they put on some of my plays. And that was a great experience. And I've written a lot of romance, so that you can probably tell by um, reading the Hildegard series. She has a bit of a thing about um, the abbot at Muse and various other men who stray past her vision. Having taught history was interesting because I've I realised the value of primary sources and I think a lot of people just don't bother to look at them because they're in strange language, Latin or whatever, um, which is a shame because it means they don't go, go back to find out what the facts were, so come up with a lot of imaginary events and rules and regulations and so on, which distorts the past, I think. Um, what else? What else did you say? I mean, you, you wrote Libretti? Yes, yes, that was that was contemporary. It was um, one. The last one we did was about the Japanese writer Mishima, the one who committed harakiri. Very dramatic stories, you can imagine, and that was good. Quite abstract. Is written by it was the music was written by someone who was just spent time in Japan. So that was interesting. Um, what else? It's quite a long time ago, you know. I've been around for a long time, which you can probably tell. I've been writing since I was in my late teens and obviously started off writing plays at that point because I was so in love with theatre. 
and doing lots of street theatre, all that kind of experimental stuff, which, of course, doesn't make a living for anyone. So I then started writing romance, which is very, very well paid. Well, it's an impressive career. Thank you for your time today, Cassandra, and thank you, listeners. The book, again, is Cassandra Clark's Dark Waters Rising from Severn House. Please join us again soon for the next Litcast.